The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, I ask you to come near you who dwells in heaven. Would you come and inhabit this room, draw near to us, and cause your name to be honored, hallowed be your name, revered, respected, be your name. I ask you to draw near to carry out your kingdom purposes among us. Would your will be done? I ask you to draw near now, Father, Son, and Spirit, to provide what we need today. Not just material things that we need, but an encounter with you, an intaking and a a sowing and a watering and a growing up of truth in us. Would you draw near to keep us from being overwhelmed by temptation and attack from our enemy, the evil one, from the world that is a servant of his, and from our own fallen hearts that are easily deceived and prone to wander. Father, yours is the kingdom. Bring it near, please. Grow us up in it. We are dependent on you for this, God Almighty. Would you clear out from our hearts now, as we sit here, would you clear out from our our individual hearts, from this corporate place, all that which would be a barrier? Sin and distraction, Lord, clear it out that we could hear from you. Clear it out of my heart, out of my friends' hearts here. Create a pure, clean channel through which you can pour out streams of living water. Lord, have your way here in our midst. Speak through your word. Make us a people pleasing to you that the Son might be honored. As our hope, that is our request of you this morning. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. God is serious. He has to be. Because he himself is dramatically, drastically real. He is final and absolute. And so, therefore, extremely serious worthy of being treated seriously, sober-mindedly, exactingly, carefully. Which is not to say that there is no light-heartedness in God, even humor. After all, we are people, creatures made in His image, and we understand humor. 
We have the ability to see things that are absurd or ironic, recognize them and, and chuckle at them. Who made that? God did. God has a sense of humor, and he is serious, both. And our passage this morning shows us a little bit of each of that, right, right alongside of each other. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, First Samuel chapter 5, God is making an extremely serious point. Dramatically, drastically real, final, absolute, extreme. And he's making it in a way that, that should cause a sensitive reader, an alert reader, to chuckle a little bit. When you look at and consider the absurdity, what's going on in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 5 of 1 Samuel. So we're going to look at this morning, and, and it's my kind of humor. It's very dry. It's not rip-roaring joking. There's just a subtle absurdity to it. We turn our attention to that text. What we're going to see is more of the fallout from the event at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 4. Beginning of that chapter, we saw a, a battle, actually two battles, between uh, Philistines and Israelites. And you'll recall that just before, at the very beginning of the chapter, and at the end of chapter 3, Samuel was established as a prophet in all of Israel by God, and everybody knew it. Everybody knew that through Samuel, God is speaking. God is revealing himself. However, when the Philistines launch a military expedition against Israel, Israel does not consult Samuel, does not consult the Lord, but instead immediately rallies an army and goes out to meet them and is defeated in the first battle in chapter 4. And surprised by that, Israel still does not consult Samuel or the word of the Lord, but hatches a plan as to how to win round two. I know, we will go and take for ourselves the ark of the Lord out of the sanctuary and bring it to the battlefield and thereby gain the ultimate omnipotent reinforcement. We're bring the ark of the Lord, which as you'll recall, was essentially a box overlaid in gold with some angels on top. And it was established by God when he told Moses how to make it. He said, what this is going to be is going to be an earthly model, a representation, a reminder of my heavenly throne. It's going to be kind of my earthly throne. Set in what is a model of my earthly temple, my, my heavenly temple, an earthly sanctuary with an earthly throne in it, and there God sits, and so it represents His presence. And so from that ark emanates the presence and the power of God. And so there, was numerous, there were numerous times in Israel's history where this power had been shown. So they think, we bring this ark here, we will have the power of God, and because He is in covenant with us, He will surely fight for us and will surely defeat our enemies and surely give us what we want, military victory. But He didn't. As we saw, He would rather be humiliated, shamed, mocked, despised by Gentiles than used by His own people for their own agenda. He will not be useful like a tool in their hands. He will be Lord or he will be gone. And that's what happens. He is taken away, carried off as a captive from this battle. A, a dramatic defeat. And what we saw last week, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, chapter 4, was the aftermath of that battle in the city of Shiloh, where the, the sanctuary was. We saw 
uh, a lot of tragedy there as the, as this, as the news of the battle comes and, and calamity strikes and, and God strikes down the house of Eli by killing Eli and, and Eli's lineage, his daughter-in-law dies also. Everybody's grieved there as God's hand falls heavy on them and His glory departs because they would not listen to Him, turn and repent. And that was the message to us last week. To listen to God now and to repent. To be grieved, but not just sorry about the circumstances, but grieved into repentance, turning back to Him. To, to not risk God departing. Now, He does not depart from Christians in an absolute sense, but He will be, can be grieved, quenched. Those are New Testament words to describe the Spirit of God, God's presence, who can be shut down, if you will. Grieved. He said, I will be Lord or I will be gone. Leave you to your own devices, and apart from Him we can do nothing. To not risk that, but to instead hear and turn and repent. That was the message to us last week. And, and may God grant us to be grieved into repentance. To be a repentant people. And now, this week, we turn and we look out, fall out of the battle from the perspective of the victors. Philistines. We're going to travel and have a different perspective. We're going to travel back to camp, back to their home city with, with them and See what happens. We read 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. 1 Samuel 5. It's a short passage. It has, it has a single setting, just this, this temple, this house of Dagon. The Philistines took the ark, and notice how initially it's called the Ark of God. It'll change in a moment. They took the Ark of God, and they brought it back to one of their chief cities near the Mediterranean coast, Ashdod, and they take it into the house of Dagon. Dagon was the chief god of the Philistines. In that day, people thought of gods as attached to people groups and to geographic locales. So this people would have had their gods in their lands, and this people would have had their gods in their lands. And when peoples fought, it was also thought of as a not just peoples fighting, but the gods fighting over the control of the lands. Kind of like a big package deal. So, naturally, obviously, they had just conquered Israel, and so therefore their god had conquered the god of Israel. 
So he's taken as a prisoner of war and brought back to the house of Dagon, his temple, and put, if you will, into Dagon's trophy case. Can be set up there. They, they still think of him as a god. They, they think of all of these deities as gods, but we've just established the pecking order. One is supreme, one is subservient. He may be useful. After all, they know that he defeated the Egyptians. That might come in handy someday. But he will be useful to the cause of the supreme one, Dagon. So he's gathered in as one of the entourage. A trophy of war. So far, that's totally ordinary, expected. Everybody and his brother understands that. That's what happens. But, funny thing happened. Verse 3. Early the next day, the people of Ashdod found something odd. And the point of them rising early is, is in here a couple times, emphasized that this happened at night when nobody was around. There weren't any people involved in this. They get up early the next morning, and, and you can picture the, the first priest opening the door of the temple, rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, and behold, what's this? Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now it says, change. God is a generic word. Lord is a name. What we're talking about are two specific gods, Dagon and the Lord, Yahweh. This god fell face down in the dirt. That word even is ground. You would think temple floor, it emphasizes ground, before this other god named Yahweh. Prostrate on the ground in total submission, paying homage before the throne of Yahweh in his own house. Well, we can't have that. And so they pick him up and put him back in his place. That's the joke. Very subtle. We can't have our God bowing down to one of his entourage, so we must exalt him up again so we can bow down to him, never mind that he was bowing down to that one. They put him back in his place. And they went about their business. But funny thing happened again. Verse 4. Early the next day, the first people up find something even odder. Behold, what's this? Very same words. Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, before Yahweh's throne. And now more, the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only his trunk, his torso was left to him. This is an even stronger statement than what had happened the morning before. In ancient times, battles, you think of the weaponry of ancient times, battles were fought up close and personal. And so when the battle was over, the whole battlefield's like right here. And the losers, including their wounded, are all lying right here. There's no artillery that killed people way over there. It's all right around here. And all the wounded of the losers are dispatched. And sometimes even the dead would undergo the same kind of ritual, cutting off the head and cutting off the hands that wielded the weapons. If they were special warriors, even the dead would undergo this. Kings or rulers or generals. It happens actually repeatedly throughout First and Second Samuel. We'll, we'll see it. Who, whose head does David cut off? Saul's head's cut off and hung up on a wall. 
This, this happens. It's showing very graphically, we won. Here's the hands that wielded the weapons cut off. Here's the head in my hand. We won. They walk in and they find their God decapitated with his hands cut off, lying on the threshold. Now, and the threshold was, was an important place because that's the, the line of demarcation between the secular and the sacred. We might think of like how the altar is special in, in kind of our religious building thinking. Well, the threshold often was, was special. So he cut off the head and he cut off the hands and he put them on the threshold. Conquered. And they come in and they step over the threshold, over the heads and hands of their vanquished God. They come in before Yahweh and they do it for years and years afterwards. Now if we keep reading, they, they get rid of the ark. But evidently, they patch Dagon back together, put him back in his place, and for years continue to step over the threshold where Yahweh had laid out his head in his hands. It's kind of them to be so polite to him. There's another joke. Very dry. But it is a joke. And that's what they did. The priests of Dagon and all the house, I mean, the priests coming in to serve him, step over the place where his decapitated head was laid and come and bow down to him. The absurdity of it. That's the passage. And if you're a discerning reader, it should leave you chuckling as you look at what is a very serious point. So let me make two points. Here's the first one. The Lord reigns supreme over all the earth. The Lord reigns supreme over all the earth. Our God, the Lord, the God of the Bible, reigns. And to be sure we understand the word supreme, just a minute of thinking about that. A su supreme, the, the word supreme is obviously something about high or much. But we must think very clearly about the Lord as supreme because it is the foundational truth of our existence. It is, it is point one of human life. There is one God, the God of the Bible, and He is in charge of everything, everywhere, in every possible way, always and forever. This is an intellectual fact to grasp, and it as if and as you think about that, it may well make you tremble. He is king. Does all of his will is unstoppable. He is God who reigns. 
But I do not want to only speak about authority. It, it is very clearly about authority. He is the greatest and most important and the most powerful. But it, it, is, it is more than, than just a, a strong statement of omnipotence. It is also a statement of worthiness. He is worthy of the supreme honor the highest and greatest respect. He holds values. His values are the greatest, the highest of all values. They are right and pure and good. His ways are right. The direction in which He steers this creation is correct. How He sees things is absolutely accurate. And anything that you can think of, he is tops. Put, put him on anything, top. That's what's expressed here. The supremacy of this God. It's the whole point of the battle within Dagon's house. To answer the question, which God is in charge? It seems that the battle had just answered that question. The Philistines won. The Philistines' God won. The Philistines carted off this God and brought him in as a prisoner. And this event changes that. It answers the question differently. That's the whole point. But the Lord is acting here in this place to emphasize, to underline a little bit, you see, everybody would have believed that over the Israelites, Yahweh's in charge of them. Yahweh is supreme over those people. And in Israelite land, that's Yahweh's land. He's in charge over there. Sure, okay. You have your God. We have ours. He wants to say more than that. Carry me over to your land. Put me in your God's house. And I'll show you something. I am the supreme one everywhere over everyone at all times. He will bow the knee. All are conquered by this king. That's here. But there's a little more still. Let me emphasize it by, by adding something to my main point here. And this has been, I think, the challenging part to me. The Lord reigns supreme over all the earth. Here's the added part. Even if for a while it doesn't look like it. even if for a while it doesn't look like it. What's particularly unique here is that this takes place after the battle, in which it would seem that the pecking order has been established, the questions have already been answered, Yahweh's defeated, he failed to deliver his people, and he's been carted off in shame. And the circumstances on the ground would strongly incline a thinking person to trust in Dagon. 
There are 30,000 Israelite corpses here that are telling a story. In whom do we find life? Where is power found? Which God? Look and ask and think and answer. Dagon. That's what the circumstances say. That, that's what the issues... Now we, we step back from this. We, we know the rest of the Bible. We know more. We, we've read and we've seen that actually, you know, what God's doing here is God's got a bunch of a bunch of things going. He's working out this judgment against the house of Eli. He's killing Hophni and Phinehas. We see what he's going to do here in chapter 5. We see the rest of chapter 5 where he's going to speak to the Philistines. He's ca- calling his people back to repentance. We see all that. But we see the big picture. We have stepped away and we're looking from 30,000 feet. Down here, in the immediate, all you see from ground level is a battlefield, a weeping city of Shiloh, and an ark being carried off as prisoner. If you're looking at this with the eyes in your head, there's a clear right answer. That is the challenge to us. I imagine that few of us here, certainly none of us who are Christians, are going to disagree with with what I said about God being supreme, the Lord reigning supreme over all the earth. I could talk about that, define supreme. I think probably some, when I stated the point, said, oh, okay, yeah, heard that before. He says that all the time. There's, there's not much new there in that. Now, I'm not going to get much disagreement about God reigning supreme. And we probably, as we look at, look at these guys propping their God back up and patching his hands back on, we probably chuckle along a little bit with that and think how silly those Philistines are, propping up their God. But the, I think, at least for me, I think... We look at the story this way and we hear the point and, and we don't object and we're not bothered by it only because we are removed from it and we see the whole picture. If you drop down to in, in our lives where we actually do our living down here on this level, we are sorely tempted. I mean, we are, are strongly, drastically tempted. We are, are bothered by the apparent success and apparent comfort of the rulers and powers and systems of this world, and we are bothered by the apparent silence and the apparent absence and apparent defeat and abandonment that we perceive in our God. Are you? We look around and we say, surely He reigns. I agree. Where on God's earth is He gone? And we look around and we say, I've I've got two choices. I've got Dagon, if you will, and I've got Yahweh. And yes, He reigns. And this one has everything going for Him. He's God. He's in charge. This one's winning. And we're bothered by that and strongly tempted. And to be clear, when I'm talking about Dagon, I'm not necessarily focusing on stone or gold statues in your den. 
Sometimes we're talking about tangible idols, cars and money and jobs and sex, but most of the time we're talking about thoughts and ideas, things that supplant allegiance to God. I just wish I could find some peace. I just wish I could find some comfort. And the tangible things are means to that end. It seems like these folks who have nothing to do with God are are successful and and victorious and comfortable and and enjoying life. And what's going on over here? We're drawn. The facts on the ground testify to the supremacy of one God and the Bible says another. It is hard to trust the Lord as the Almighty Supreme King amidst lowliness and suffering and defeat and pain and uncertainty. So we don't. We follow the other gods that seem successful and sure and strong and beautiful. We must hear the word of the Lord that says things like Psalm 16, verse 4. Psalm 16, verse 4 is the word of the Lord that speaks contrary to all the whisperings of all the other voices that say, come follow me for life. Who do you trust for power? Where are you going to find success? What will give you comfort, hope, and rest in your heart? Come. And Psalm 16.4 says, uh, The sorrow of those who run after other gods will multiply. Oh, they didn't tell me that. Yeah, that was in the fine print. You didn't read that part. So God puts that up front and center. The sorrow of of those who run after other gods will multiply. There may be some short-term payoff in following the nations, the gods of the nations. There, there may be some immediate sense of, of relief of the, of the tension of just of letting go of that and running after. But it's sorrow multiplied in the long run. On the other hand, as the rest of the psalm says, starting in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. There. I have set the Lord always before me. And because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. To hear the, the reign of God in that. The Lord is the one before me. He is the one who directs my vision. He is the one who commands my, my direction. And therefore, I will not be shaken. My heart is glad as it continues. Multiplied sorrow or the Lord set before me for gladness. This is the alternative of the Scripture. It is the exact opposite of what The eyes in our head looking at the circumstances on the ground very often see. I'll say, 
We must be like the psalmist and set the Lord always before us. I'll say that and then immediately follow that. But it isn't that easy, is it? It's very difficult. what, What are we supposed to do? That's not hard to understand. Doing it. He just says it as if it's simple. I have set the Lord always before me. I have a heart that is easily deceived and prone to wander. There are many distractions and many challenges. I think you do too. When we face a life in which the very goodness, the the very steadfastness of God is called into question, It is not sufficient to say, well, set the Lord before you. We are in need of something, of someone stronger to come and set himself back in his proper place. I cannot. I have tried. I see the the answer... But I'm left looking for strength and power to make the answer real. The Lord set before me is the answer. My hands are weak. He is the supreme one who reigns over everything. And in the face of all of the circumstances that say otherwise, I need Him, we need Him for us, His people, to lift Himself up to His place in front of us. And thankfully, he will do that, which is the second point. The the second point, put in a sentence, he himself will put himself in his proper place. He's a real God. He'll do that. He himself will put himself in his proper place, in the world in general, and in our hearts in particular, thankfully. Thankfully. Throughout chapter 4, as we've seen in chapter 5 and on into chapter 6, we see the Lord is doing remarkable things as he, as he moves in the earth. He controls the events of countries. He controls battles. He controls diseases and afflictions. He pulls it all together to strike down Eli's house, to, to bring discipline to his, to his people. He's providentially working through all kinds of events. And that word that I just used right there, providential, it doesn't apply to our passage. The providence of God, you You'll recall, the providence of God, the doctrine of providence is the word that we use to explain how God commonly carries out His will, His purposes. He reigns supreme, He's got a purpose, a will, and He commonly carries it out. This doctrine says He accomplishes His will through the natural workings and actions of secondary causes. That's the doctrine of providence. God accomplishes His will through the natural workings and actions of secondary causes, like weather or like animals, or easiest example here, chapter 2, verse 25, 
We saw that it was the Lord's will to put to death Hophni and Phinehas. And how does he accomplish that? Through the natural working of ordinary circumstances and causes like Philistine soldiers. We could look at that whole event and say, it just so happened, what do you know, that when they summoned the ark, Hophni and Phinehas carried it out there. Huh. Well, it was their job. They were the priests. So they carry the ark out. And as the battle's going on, Philistine soldiers are thrusting spears and swinging swords, and they come upon them, and they, and they get them both. Nobody ever realizing, certainly not the Philistines, that they are carrying out the express will of God. Never crosses their mind. That's the doctrine of providence. And that doesn't apply here, which is the point. There is not a righteous Israelite within 50 miles of Ashdod when this passage happens. And all the Philistines are completely asleep. There's not a human being involved in this in any way whatsoever. There's no wind current. There's no shaking of the ground. The security camera at the temple picked up no indication of any secondary causes whatsoever. The rock moved and went face down in front of the box. It just did. And then they put it back up. And the next night it did, and the head and the hands popped off and moved over and sat on the threshold. That's not secondary causes. That's primary causes. That's the God who spoke into existence the heavens and the earth out of nothing, saying, rock, move, face down, hands off. I will rearrange the matter of the stone, separate it, and migrate it. God himself, all by himself, for himself, claims the throne in Dagon's temple. Which tells us something that we need to take to heart. There there are a couple things we need to take from this. The first thing we need to take is that He doesn't need us. We are not necessary. Yes, He loves us as people. And yes, He has chosen most often to work providentially. And to use us as secondary causes, most often that is how he works. What a privilege it is. But we have to be clear, when he's working providentially using us, it's like a parent letting the toddler help with the project around the house. There's some other purpose in the letting the help happen. Maybe it's a purpose of establishing relationship. Maybe it's a purpose of teaching Junior how to do this. It's not because Junior is needed to get it done. He's making more work by being involved. God is independent in His sovereign power, free to do whatever He pleases, And he does not need us at all. Which tells us something about, think of a context of missions or evangelism, because this is involving testimony to the nations. This and the next section will be that especially. 
We often read something like the Great Commission passage at the end of Matthew or, or other passages about being my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and we think, man, you know, I, I got a job to do. And if we understand it properly, it's good to think like that. We have been assigned as providential helpers. He doesn't need us. The Great Commission is God's job, and He would say to us very clearly, I got it. I don't need you. Now, perhaps for such a time as this, you have come to situation X and Y, but if not, I will get it some other way. tells us that behind all of God's providential working is not me, the worker, but God, the worker. Puts us in our place and should encourage us because it tells us it's not up to me, ultimately. It's not going to rise. God's kingdom's not going to rise, not going to fall on my performance. There's a lot of liberty in that if you think it through. He does whatever he pleases. And what is he about doing? putting himself back in his proper place. He is God. He reigns supreme. He is in charge. But he is about something, working every day to close the gap between the reality that that exists in the heavens and the rebellion that exists on the earth. He's closing that gap. Gaining back his kingdom, if you will. How does he do that? Well, not ultimately like what he does in this story. A dramatic display of power. I mean, twice. We look at that and say, how'd they miss it? They missed it. They set him back up the first day. They set him back up with superglue the second day. They missed it. They never forgot it. They stepped over the threshold for years. They didn't forget it. They just missed it. And we're going to see the next, the, the rest of the chapter. They get it and they miss it, which is just like the Israelites. They saw countless dramatic displays of God's power. They stood at the foot of the mountain and it trembled and smoked and burned and they heard the voice of the Lord thunder. And they perished in the desert in unbelief. How is God going to work to reclaim His proper place in the world and in here? How is He going to do that? The story should point us towards how one day the Lord submitted Himself to be carried off prisoner. And lifted himself up, casting down all the other gods. It should make us think. How is it? Does it does it not make you? Nathan and I didn't talk about this, but there were several songs that were put in there with "Every knee will bow, every tongue confess." Does it not make you connect some of those dots? Here's a God bowing down and confessing with mute mouth. This should make you think 
about how God became flesh. How God, the Lord, submitted Himself to shame and humiliation. And yet, in the end, triumphed. It should make you think about God, who became man, was crucified and raised, and in the language of 1 Corinthians, is now on the march to subject every authority and every power over all of the earth under his feet and will one day return it in submission to the Father. He himself will put himself in his proper place by giving the scepter to his Son who will conquer Everything, everywhere. Which is really good news. It's good news in the the world sense. God is conquering. All enemies are being subjected to Christ. He will be exalted. That, That is an awesome thing. But again, I I want to say that, but I want to move on beyond that because the part that seems most relevant to me is not so much the out there in the world, although I think that's what the passage is wanting us to think about, conquering foreign gods and foreign lands. But the part that grabs me, I, I have to say, is how he is at work in Christ to reclaim proper place in here. Not just out there somewhere. We look at the world, the circumstances on the ground, and are strongly inclined and lured away. We are deaf and blind and all too often content to pick up previously shattered idols, patch them back together, prop them up and bow down to them again. And the good news is that he is at work in a Christian's life. You're a Christian. He is at work in your life to fix that. To cut that pattern out of your life. Slowly. He is. And I, I need that. Because when the, when the psalm says, set the Lord always before you, I find I cannot do it. I cry out, I, I use the means, yes, absolutely, let, let us work providentially. God, here's the book, I'm, I'm going to trust you to use it. But behind that must be an omnipotent, sovereign one who says, I will take words and make them real. Apart from that, I can do nothing. Apart from that, you can do nothing. You are only left apart from God gifting. You are left knowing what you should do. Set the Lord always before me. Put Him at my right hand and find joy. I should not follow after the gods of the world. They will multiply my sorrows. You're left knowing what you should do until God graciously acts. We are left there knowing what we should do, and prone to wander. So there is a tremendous piece of good news here to know that God is committed to life in His people. 
that God is committed to setting himself up in proper place in his people. That's good news. That he does not depend on us to do it. Not in the nations out there, not in our own hearts. What I'm talking about in different words is things like sanctification or things like where it says, be transformed in Romans 12 by the renewing of your mind. How does my mind get renewed? By the Spirit of God. I mentioned last week the passive command in Ephesians 4, be made new. By whom? By the Spirit of God. What does he use? He uses the word absolutely, absolutely, but he does it. which I just have to say to him, thank you. Because I find myself so constantly, and if you will stop and think, I think you find yourself so constantly stuck at the knowing what should be, but not quite there. And the answer to you is not suck it up and try harder. The answer to you is God, help to cry out to him, to hope that He will come, that He will work. It means not setting your Bible aside and crying out to it. It means crying out to Him over your Bible, of saying, God, here are the words. Make them real. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. You, help me. That turns us to the place where the power is. And thankfully, He will do it. He is dramatically, drastically, seriously concerned to exalt Himself in all of His creation. Thankfully, that includes you. There is a hope here. We should pick up our Bibles. We should give Him ammunition to use in in the fight. We must repent when He shows us to repent, when He calls us to repent. But we are ultimately, and and this, this is perhaps... Maybe painfully, maybe counterintuitively, maybe unexpectedly humbling. You, person, are not in charge of you. Try to make yourself love. You can't. You can know that you should, and you can know why you should, but you are left ultimately saying, God, grow in me love of you and love of others. The fulfillment of the law. We are pointed towards Him to exalt Himself in the world and in us. And the good news... Brothers and sisters, the good news, the hope for you is that he will do it. We look at a world 
in which all the evidence out here inclines us to trust in everything but Yahweh, though we know the Bible says we should, cry out to Him, brother, sister. Cry out to Him and ask Him to claim the throne in your heart. He will do it. Let me pray. Father, we are in need of you to move. You are God. We are flesh. We have hearts that are deceitful, even as Christians. We are prone to wander, even as Christians. You have set us free, and you continue to set us free because of Christ. Continue to set us free to bow the knee to Him. Please do so more and more with your people, more and more with me. Lead us in repentance where we have turned away in unbelief. Draw us back by showing yourself trustworthy, by showing yourself good. By showing yourself loving. Do that for us, I pray. Claim your rightful place, Father. Lord, do a work in your people now as we sit and think for a minute. Do a work in your people. Whatever particular thing is needed for each one here, do a work. Call Convict, encourage, have your way with us, I pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.